Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. B bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. It's just bullshit. I was watching the show with my son Donald. He's got this rare immune deficiency in his blood. The damnedest thing. Doctors say he has to live in a plastic bubble. Can you imagine that? A bubble. A bubble? A bubble. Yes, a bubble. A bubble boy? Yes, a bubble boy. He lives in a could have died. It was 1966, and technology was not, you know. Anyway. Maybe you did <laughs> die. What? And they replaced you. Ah. Okay. With the slightly retarded uh, <laughs> midget boy. Oh, no, I'll just. Oh. Okay. You know, I've always thought you live in a little bit of a bubble. I do. Like Ray just lives in this lives lives in this bubble. Doesn't you know? Doesn't do anything. Right. Stays at home. I think I masturbates <laughs> with his with his dog. Well, not with the dog he watches, but separate. Um, I think subconsciously. Oh, what I've heard. <laughs> subconsciously, I think I've always yearned to return to the bubble. So that's why that's why I live the life that I do. It's my own bubble. But this time, I control the bubble. I'm the bubble master. <laughs> this is my oh. bubble, a bubble of my making. You're trying to blend too many Seinfeld <laughs> references in there at once. It's getting crazy! Oh, God. I'm so happy. Uh, episode 3.29. Uh, every time I think, you know, I've got to get rid of Ray. He's fucking useless. You just, you come up with something like that. And then I'm like, oh my, this is, this is gold. I cannot. I'm, how can I get I'm rid of Ray? He's year. a bubble boy. I'm good for another year. <laughs> good for another year. Yeah. you got to come up with a good story. Like, every, you know, quite honestly, you could have got a year out of the, I waited five years to fuck Heather story. That, 
you could have traded on that for at least another six, so, seven, eight months, so, honestly. <laughs> you got to save up your stories like Don't this. Don't shoot them out all at once. Just, I got you. I mean, I mean, exactly, yeah, I'm exactly, Spread exactly. It out. Okay. Spread it out. <laughs> Start working on the next one now. What other deep, dark skeleton in my closet do I have that I will tell Cam about a year from now? Put a little do- note in your diary, a little alarm. Oh, got to tell Cameron another story to keep him interested. Oh, it's all about pacing. It's like a marriage. Right, exactly. Well, no, a podcast, a podcast partnership is like a exactly. marriage. You know, you need to spice it up every now right. and again. Here's my spice. You know, you need a little, little bit of a costume, right. little, you know, a little bit of a... Role th- playing. You know, bring in a... Hooker for a, for a, for a surprise right, threesome. Right. Um, yes, you know, do some drugs. It's getting. Speaking of which, yeah, let's talk about John DeLorean. Right. <laughs> he lived in a bubble <laughs> um, of his own making. It was called the DMC Twelve. Um, now, for the kids out there yeah. who don't know who John DeLorean yeah. was. John Delorean, have you ever seen a little movie called Back to the Future? Yes. Uh, Back in time. You have. Yeah. Of course you have. Yeah. Yeah. Now, well, there's, a, there's a pretty cool car in that movie. It has the gullwing doors. Um, that's a DeLorean. It's a DMC-12. And it was made by a guy whose name was John DeLorean. Badass. Um, when he was... Making the car uh, and setting up the car company, he brought in Barry and Stan... <coughs> He said, um, we need to come up with a name for the company. They said, oh, we can do that, no problem. It's going to t- cost a million dollars. It's going to take us a year. He said, that's fine. I've heard you guys are the best. Uh, they came back a year later and they said, here it is, big unveiling. They had right. one of those tripods. Yeah. They had a big, big like poster-sized cardboard with a, with a sheet a over curtain it. In front Pulled away the right. sheet, it was DeLorean. And he said, well, fucking I could have come up with that. And they said, ah. But you, you didn't. But you That's didn't. Right. You didn't. We That's did. Right. Find me an egg <laughs> and stand it on its end. DeLorean Motor Mixing Company. Streams. Wow. Yeah. Now, John DeLorean was an absolute superstar. Mm-hmm. Um, before my time, uh, this goes back to the sort of the 50s and the 60s, but apparently in the American country- right. Uh, before it became Trumpville, um, when it was still known as America, mm-hmm. uh, he was a big deal, this guy, even before the DeLorean. So he worked at General Motors, where he invented a little car known as the Pontiac GTO. Oh, nice. The, the world's first muscle car. Then right. he developed the Pontiac Firebird. Huh, I've heard of which that. Which... Yeah. Became this car. He's found it down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Time he's found a clock and it runs. Keep your foot hard on the Fucking fucking jump something. I gotta jump something. Yeah, the Trans Am, the Bandit's car, and um, Kit. Also, Kit Knight Rider. Oh, that's right. Hello, Michael. (laughs) Um, 
So he invented those, DeLorean, right. when he was a GM. Then he left GM in 1973 to form his own company, yeah. the DeLorean Motor Company. And, of course, the car he produced, the DMC-12, very, very famous, but it was a huge fucking disaster, is what a lot of the kids right. may not realise. Yeah, but it was the only car capable of time travel, so not bad. Yeah, it little, needed some modifications to do that. Right. He had to get it up to <laughs> Flex capacitor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't come with the car, the flux capacitor. <laughs> That's uh, extra. Probably, if it had... It's a plutonium. Might have, right. Might have, so, might have sold better. Yeah, good point. Um, unfortunately, it took him eight years to get the car to market. A oh. uh, lot of production delays, raised a lot of money, and by the time he got it to market, the US economy was in a massive downturn right. in the early 80s. Um, and, and also, on top of that, the car got... Average reviews. Right. Looked as sexy as hell. Yeah. But it was expensive and had lower horsepower compared to some of the other sports cars on the market at the time because it took so long to get to fucking market. Right. Uh, turns out designing and making cars by yourself, not as easy yeah. as uh, it yeah. looks. Um, and he ended up $175 million in debt couldn't sell half right. the cars they manufactured. The company went into liquidation. But he kind of had a cunning plan to get some of that money back. Yeah, before we get to that, though, yes. I wanted to yes. point out that um, before he got himself into a lot of trouble, uh, mm-hmm. Robert Zemeckis, the writer-director of, director. of yeah. Back to the Future, um, had already decided to use a DMC-12 to serve as the, the time machine. Oh, cool. The Doc's time machine and Back to the Future. But did you know what it was originally going to be? No, a Pinto. No, tell me. The original script for Back to the Future, the time machine was a refrigerator. <laughs> On wheels? The Doc. What? No, the, the Doc modified a refrigerator... And um, in in the scene where Marty's back in 1955, in order to get back to the future, he needed to use an atomic explosion at the Nevada test site in order to power the refrigerator to get back home. Um, But Zemeckis was worried that kids would lock themselves in refrigerators. Good point. Thinking they were time machines. Yeah. Well, they would be in a way. Yeah, thought it was uh, much safer yeah. if uh, they locked themselves in the family car instead. Right. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say a movie about a time-traveling refrigerator would have not launched Michael J. Fox's career the way this one did. But that's just <laughs> my opinion. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, Michael J. Fox wasn't even the star of it originally. No, who was it? Jason uh, Bateman? No. No, no, fucking Jason Bateman. Perfect, though, because he is Michael J. Fox uh, right. clone. Um, no, the original version of it, the, uh, like when they first started shooting, I think they wanted to get Michael J. Fox, right. but he wasn't available. Scheduling. They wouldn't let him. Right. Yeah, they, they wouldn't let him out of uh, family ties. Love because- that show. Sorry. Yeah, great show. Yeah. Because uh, Meredith Baxter-Burney, who played the mother on that show. Was hot. um, Sorry. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was a bit of a milf back in the day. Yeah, um, got a, yeah, got a, yeah. And, and so was the sister. Yeah. And quite frankly, I, when I was 15, you know, everything was hot. Um, you, who was her, the, the girl, Mallory, the sister, who was her real-life twin brother? Uh, what's it, Jason Bateman? Yeah, right? yeah. there you go. Yeah, that's Good right. job. I forgot about that. Yeah, how freaky is that? Sex with both of them at the same time. That's what oh, I would do on some ecstasy. Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. Well, well, when you say both of them, do you mean Michael J. Fox and Jason Bateman? Oh or no, a foursome. The oh ba- shit, the Bateman, Michael J. The Batemans <laughs> and me and some ecstasy in a bubble. Mm. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, <laughs> So originally, uh, we're getting back to what we were talking about. Oh yes, when when they were originally, uh, so he wasn't available to so to shoot it. They actually cast uh, what's his face from um, the face uh, Eric Stoltz. Really? Yeah, from Mask. No. Eric Stoltz. Um, the kids may know Eric Stoltz most from Pulp Fiction. He's John yes. Travolta's uh, Jamson dealer. Needle. Yeah. No, he has the needle that gets jammed into her chest. Jammed into Uma Thurman's chest. I like to jam something. um, Anyway. The the adrenaline (laughs) that he slams through her rib cage. Uh, That's that's a great fucking scene. I remember uh, um, one of my good friends, uh, (laughs) whose name is Michael, he and I went to see Pulp Fiction when it came out in the cinemas in 94 because we were huge fans of Reservoir Dogs and – uh, Michael took his then girlfriend, now wife, Lisa. Uh, they'd only been dating for a couple of weeks. Took her to the film with us. She was sitting in front of me. They were sitting in front of me. And I remember when that scene happened, when he slammed it in, she jumped a foot <laughs> out of her seat and screamed. <laughs> it was the funniest thing. I laughed my ass off. Got your money's um, worth, did you? Yeah. like for, for Tarantino, Like that must be great. As a director, to be able to... Have that kind of a, yeah. an effect on people. Literally, yeah. literally jumped Jump out, out of the seat. It's fantastic. Gotcha. Anyway, yeah. So it's going to be a fridge. Um, so yeah, Eric Stoltz. They shot a couple of weeks with Eric Stoltz, mm. and then Zemeckis decided, you know what? It's just not working. Nuts, he's no. he's, he, he's a great actor, uh, yeah. but it was too dramatic and not funny enough, and so they scrapped it all, burned it all, and. Uh, Waited until Michael J. Fox was ready, and then reshot right. that first three weeks, which cost them millions and millions of dollars to do. God. Um, but they just decided, no, it's, yeah, it's if we're going to do this, do it right. You know, yeah, do it right. No yeah. fridge. We'll do a DMC twelve. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, yeah. yeah. Of course, um, what most most people also don't realize is. Um, when uh, Barry and Stan were brought in to n- name the car, right? They uh, they named it after their favourite rap group. Talk to my daddy.
Okay, here we go. We're going to do a podcast where we're going to play songs from the 70s, 80s, 60s, whatever, and we're just going to sing along with the song. Put that out. That's it. Huge. 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 Just us singing along badly to Africa and Run DMC. (laughs) And just put it on a loop. Each show will be an hour. So tell me, that song, Ray, Walk This Way, what's it about? Oh, God, I don't know. I've never really analyzed it. I just jammed along with it. Um, mm-hmm. girls, oral sex, lesbian, I, I don't know. I'm just reaching here. That's about oral sex, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. It's completely snuck through MTV senses. Wow. Um, he said, you ain't seen nothing till you're down on a muffin. muffin. Yeah. That's so true. I talked to my daddy. Backstroke lover. Okay. What's a backstroke lover? I don't know. Masturbating. Okay. He's masturbating. Backstroke lover always hiding beneath the covers. He's jerking off. First lyric. First line of the lyric. Um, basically, this is the first verse. I was always jerking off till I talked to my daddy and he said, dude, you ain't seen nothing till you're down on a muffin and then you're going to be changing your ways. Right. Now, I'm not sure if down on a muffin means oral sex or just, you know, sliding his dick into a muffin. Right. I'm assuming Both. it's probably more of... It's, oh. Well, it's probably... I don't think it means going down. I think it means, you know, getting some dick right. in the muffin. Right. I met a cheerleader, was a real young bleeder. So, you know, just in you're just hitting puberty. Right. Um, times I can reminisce. The best thing, loving with her sister and her cousin. Hell Yeah. Threesomes, foursomes, I guess. Maybe cousin, maybe female, maybe male. Don't know. Maybe it's a foursome. No, no judgment Two here. guys, two girls, FMMM. Right. Or right. maybe it's three girls. Right. And just... Fuck, uh, I'm getting turned uh, on. The lead singer of Aerosmith. Right. right. Um, seesaw swinging with the boys in school with your feet flying up in the air, singing Hey Diddle Diddle with the kitty in, in the, the middle. middle. Oh. The kitty in the middle. Yeah. And you're swinging like you just don't care. So how did that? Get how by? that? Yeah, how did that get up on radio? Same way as Lou Reed's uh, "Walk uh, on the Wild Side" did. Just poetry, baby. Just poetry. Uh, Lou Reed's uh, "Walk on the Wild Side" um, famously had um, the lyric about given head that made it onto radio because the censors didn't know what given head because they weren't getting meant. any. Yeah, <laughs> so they let it through. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anywho, right? Because Jesus, Jesus doesn't like oral sex. <laughs> a, Jesus was always no, no, none of that. No. So back to back to fucking John Delorean. How did we get sidetracked off John Delorean? I don't know. I fucking hell. People say. People, I read reviews. People say they get sidetracked all the time. I think no, we don't. And like, I guess we do. <laughs> there might be something to that argument. Might there might be? Yeah. Yeah. So um, yes, as you were indicating before, uh, he got himself into financial troubles, and then he he kind of had a plan, but it wasn't his plan. Is no. the point right? Yeah. On October nineteenth, nineteen eighty two, Delorean was charged by the U.S. government with trafficking cocaine. Huh. He had been videotaped right. in a sting operation mm. recorded by undercover federal agents where he was agreeing to bankroll a cocaine smuggling operation. Right. Now, this is in 1982, okay. uh, Back to the Future. 
85. came out in 85. Right. If he'd just been able to hold out a couple more years. Yeah, might have sold a shit ton of cars. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone wanted to be driving the car. Unfortunately, got caught too soon. <sighs> yeah. Now, as I said before, the, the US was in a recession when the car came out. It cost $25,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but most car companies were in a tailspin. It wasn't just his. But then your average car cost was about $10,000. You could get a souped-up Corvette for $18,000. Wow. So cars were doing it tough as it was, and his was uh, particularly expensive. Um, on the first day of his arrest, the British government, which had lent his company more than $160 million, closed his factory in Northern Ireland. Oh. But here's the thing. It was a setup. It was entrapment. Right. The FBI had set him up with this cocaine smuggling deal. Basically, they approached him and said, hey, uh, you know, uh, they undercover approached him and said, hey, you want to you make some short-term cash? And he goes, oh, fuck yeah. yeah I need it back. Uh, well, what do I need to do? Uh, well, we need to, we need to you know, smuggle some cocaine in and you'll make a shit ton of money. Um, and he said, oh, okay. And he went along with it. And then they went, ha, gotcha, you dirty drug dealer. Um, The FBI had set him up with more than 59 pounds, 27 kilograms of cocaine worth about 6 million US dollars at a hotel near Los Angeles International Airport after he had flown in from New York. And um, they were doing a deal, you know, a trick deal to bring in 220 pounds, 100 kilos, Mm -hmm. estimated value of 24 million. Damn. So he gets charged with this, uh, was looking at a sentence of 67 years in prison. Is that, I guess that's just yeah. the amount of the, the drugs. I guess. Okay. Um, and who tipped them off to him as a potential mark? Um, a a uh, really upstanding guy, his former neighbor, James Timothy Hoffman, because uh, he reported it to the FBI, and he said um, that DeLorean had approached him and asked about setting up a cocaine deal. But in reality, Hoffman is the one who contacted DeLorean and suggested, which DeLorean accepted, uh, uh, this deal as a part of Hoffman's efforts. But again, I think the point you're trying to get in, the point you're trying to get to is that Hoffman's what he's already um, a criminal, or he's been convicted, or he's trying to. I, I, he's trying to get basically his, re- his sentence reduced for something that he had done back in 1981. So he sets up DeLorean trying to not only bring this man down, but also to help himself with his own criminal record. Yeah. So in earlier episodes, remember we talked about the um, the the salt and pepper law. Yeah. Where if you had an informant that was suggesting that somebody was doing something dirty relating to drugs, it had to be credible. Um, right. Well, and they'd gotten rid of that, and then this guy, James Timothy Hoffman, oh. came along. He he had been busted in 1981 on a federal cocaine trafficking charge, and he told them that DeLorean was cooking up a coke deal, but as you said, he completely lied and uh, he was basically just setting up DeLorean. You, what? Yeah. A cunt. Do you think the FBI would have cared if they'd known the truth? Um, no. 
No, I don't think so. In, uh, in I that think political they, they environment. Will... Yeah, I, no, I agree. Yeah. I just think I don't think they. I mean, he obviously lied to the FBI, which is a crime in itself. But I don't think they would have cared. Yeah, yeah. I've got a. I've got uh, Washington Post open in front of me. This is from 1984. Um, it says a former agent for the Drug Enforcement Administration, testifying for the defense in the John Z. DeLorean drug trafficking trial. Today painted a picture of a publicity-hungry prosecutor and a con artist informer working in concert to get DeLorean. Damn. Gerald Scotty, who worked on the DeLorean sting operation before resigning from the DEA under a cloud, said that three weeks before DeLorean's October 1982 arrest, US Assistant U.S. Attorney James Walsh, now chief prosecutor in the case, met with federal agents and raised a toast and said, Gentlemen, I can see this on the cover of Time magazine. Oh, fuck. Um, Scotty also related a conversation he said he had with James Timothy Hoffman, an informer and the government's star witness against DeLorean, Scotty said today that in June 1982, just days before the government began its investigation of the millionaire automaker, he was assigned to babysit Hoffman, who was then testifying in another drug case. As Scotty told it, he sat in the US Attorney's office and had the following conversation with the informer. Hoffman, you know I'm going to get John DeLorean for you guys. Scotty, what do you mean you're going to get John DeLorean? Hoffman. This guy's in a lot of financial trouble. I'm going to deliver John DeLorean to you guys. With the financial problems he's got, I can get him to do anything I want. But, Scotty said today, I really still didn't believe him. I said, you're going to get this guy involved in a drug deal? He said he could. He kept telling me, just leave it to me. Fuck. So he knew. He knew this guy was in a weakened, desperate state who might have said no at any other time in his life, but he desperately needed the money. Yeah, and and Hoffman got DeLorean uh, involved in this with the prior knowledge of the uh, DEA and the Attorney General's office that that's what he was going to do. Right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Hoffman uh, also stated that he had heard DeLorean admit that he needed $17 million in a hurry oh God. to prevent... Don't we all? Oh, right. The right, DeLorean right. Motor Company's imminent insolvency. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I mean, but if you think about it, this guy who worked at General Motors, he created these other incredible cars. He's got his own company that, you know, like your company, you bleed for that thing. And now he's in desperate straits. And I don't know John DeLorean from The Man on the Moon. But yeah, in that situation, I can see him saying yes. And this guy was using his knowledge of that. So that's so on the other side of the law. Which, of course, DeLorean's probably going to argue during his trial that he was set yes. up. Yes. Yeah, someone had prior knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's called entrapment mm. when you entrap somebody to commit a crime. Ah. So that's, that's how uh, DeLorean's defense positioned it. They were successful. They argued that the FBI and the DIA had unfairly targeted and illegally trapped DeLorean right. when they allowed Hoffman to randomly solicit DeLorean into a criminal conspiracy because they knew he was financially right. vulnerable. Yeah, if if you take the first step to try to get me into a crime, I don't do anything. Yeah, you're the one responsible, not me. So I, I 
I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but yeah, when you break it down like that, someone actually made a proactive mood to get him involved in a crime. I mean, that's crazy. Now, the FBI does this all the time, and if you don't believe me, read Tim Weiner's book on the FBI. Mm. Um, uh, Tim Weiner, again, Weiner, Weiner. I've, I've talked about him a lot. He's a uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist who wrote The Legacy of Ashes, the, the massive book on the history of the CIA, and he also wrote one on uh, the FBI. And he goes over case after case after case, and it's still going on to this day, where the FBI entraps people, gets thrown out of court, uh, but they get some headlines for it. We saw this a lot in uh, George W. Bush's era, where the FBI would be entrapping potential Muslim terrorists. Um, they get these guys and they go, hey, 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 right. you know what? You know what? You should you should build a fucking bomb and blow something up. Yeah. Because fuck, fuck these, uh, you know, American imperialists, right? right? Right. Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> And they, we'll, we'll, we'll get it all for you. It's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll get the bomb stuff. We'll, we've got it all sorted. Don't you worry about it. And usually they pick these guys that are vulnerable. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. easily manipulatable, right. low IQ or already angry or broken or something else. They get them to build a bomb and then they go, aha, yeah. we gotcha. <laughs> Building a bomb, you dirty fucking little terrorist. And it goes to court and the court's going, fuck off with this shit and right. throw it out. And But they get the headlines and they get yeah. a bump and... They, um, I think sometimes they hope that they can get these guys into a difficult situation and flip them, get them to hand over maybe real terrorists that they might know. They're trying uh. to, you know, weaken their resolve. But it's a dirty, dirty game. And the FBI has been doing it for a very long time. And to the best of my knowledge, they keep doing it today. And that's why when people say, well, the fucking 9-11 attackers were supported by the FBI or the CIA or Bush or whatever it was, the crazy conspiracy theories, well, you know, when the FBI does entrap people into nearly committing crimes a lot of the time, you have to wonder eh, how many times have they actually committed crimes? Uh, Let them go through with it. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fuck, it's, it's, it's so hard, man, to stay out of that kind of thinking when you know that they actually do that trap people all the time. That that reminds me, do you know if DeLorean was guilty of any previous crimes? It seems like a straight laced kind of guy. No, he had a complete lack of criminal history up until this point. Okay. Very reputable businessman, a reputable citizen, uh, Christian versus, um, (laughs) versus Hoffman versus Hoffman, who was a career criminal. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Okay. DeLorean's defense team didn't even bother to call any witnesses. (laughs) They just went, Your Honor, this is a fucking bunch of bullshit. Yeah. And judge went, fuck yeah. Yeah. What? What? What is this bullshit? And threw it out. DeLorean was found not guilty, um, but it took two years. It was 1984 when the case was over. By that time, DMC, the company, had already collapsed into bankruptcy. (sighs) And Run DMC was just starting to take off. So right. it kind of balanced itself yeah. out uh, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, his reputation as a businessman was tarnished forever. Yeah. The attorney who defended him said there's rampant paranoia among the criminal defense lawyers and it's there with good purpose. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Because this is getting back to the whole thing about them. Um, 
the government trying to force criminal defence attorneys to rat on their own clients. Yeah. DeLorean, uh, when asked after his acquittal if he planned to get back into the auto industry, said, would you buy a used car from me? (laughs) He's ruined. Oh, my God. He was ruined, yeah. I mean, he was probably ruined anyway. Right. But financially, businesses go under all the time. Fucking Donald Trump's had how many businesses go under and hasn't seemed to hurt his his reputation. Right. Um, without this, DeLorean, he was only in his late 50s at the time. He probably would have got out of it, picked himself back up. The company would have gone into liquidation. He would right. have gone and done something else. Yeah. He probably another Smart good 20 years right. in him, you know, of, of good effort. Yeah. But no, this completely ruined his reputation, even though it was all bullshit. I mean, it was a setup. I guess he did go along with it, so there's yeah. that. But still, but, um He was guilty of agreeing to go along with it. But, right, uh, yeah. Yeah. And he died in but no one's, 2000. no one's going to hire him. Right. Like General yeah, Motors over. aren't going to hire him it's back. You know, he, yeah. he agreed to smuggle cocaine into the country. Yeah. Yes, it was a setup, but he did agree to do it. Right. So his, his career is over. Yeah. And, he, and I think he died in 2005. Ah, oh, fuck. Yeah. Well, at least he got to see his car everywhere. Yeah. Oh, you know, it became, you know, Pretty one of the most famous cars ever. Yeah, I would have bought so, the car you know. just for the doors, and I would have parked it in my driveway. Probably wouldn't go anywhere, but I just would have got in and out of it all day when someone was going by. Badass, just badass. In uh, the summer of '84, the Supreme Court ruled that, on suspicion alone, an international traveler into the United States could be strip searched and then held incommunicado. Until, and this is your favourite bit, Ray, I'm sure, (laughs) until he or she defecated Mm -hmm. into a waste basket. While being monitored. Now, I'd be like, hey, you don't need to, like, (laughs) even take me out of line for that. I'll defecate into a waste basket anywhere, anytime, at the drop of a hat, just for fun. (laughs) Shits and giggles. Just bring me a hat. Waste basket, <laughs> your lunch, and a good time. A taco, right. burrito. That yeah, come on. Yeah, that would be helpful. Yeah. I do autographs and children's parties. <laughs> autograph in the shit in the waste basket. I'll autograph it. You know, you don't even have to bring me like a pen. I'll just well, do it with my finger. <laughs> because there's only three letters in my name, I can actually shit write my name in cursive. <laughs> Oh, did you learn that when you're in the bubble? Is that how no, you nothing else rolled to away do. the time? Yeah, you can only masturbate yeah, learn- so many times in one day. <laughs> Backstroke lover, always up beneath the covers. Yeah, in his bubble. <laughs> so I assume we're talking about Rosa. Rosa. You tell the story of Rosa. Okay, so Rosa Elvira Montoya de Hernandez entered the United States at Los Angeles International Airport from Bogota, Colombia, on March 5, 1983. All fine and good. At the customs desk, she encountered customs inspector Talamantes, who reviewed her documents and noticed from her passport that she made at least eight recent trips from either Miami or Los Angeles. Hmm, he's thinking. She was questioned by customs, and to be honest, we don't have to go into details, but she answered most of their questions badly. I'm sure she was nervous or whatever, but she couldn't make much sense. She was strip-searched. 
There was a bulge in her belly, so the customs inspectors detained her. They suspected that she was a balloon swallower. I'm waiting for the jokes to start. She was held in a room for 16 hours, not allowed to call anyone, certainly not a lawyer. Then the officials started working on a court order for a pregnancy test, an x-ray, and a rectal exam. During those 16 hours, she was given the option of she could return to Colombia on the next available flight, she could agree to an x-ray, or she could remain in detention, detention until she produced a monitored bowel movement, my favorite kind. She chose the first option, but she chose the first option, but the officials were unable to place her on the next flight, and she refused to use the the toilet facilities. The Court of Appeals that comes later noted that she exhibited symptoms of discomfort consistent with heroic efforts to resist the usual calls of nature. Pursuant to the court order, a pregnancy was conducted at the hospital, and it was proved negative and a rectal examination resulted in obtaining, and I think this took a couple of days, I'm not quite sure, 88 cocaine-filled balloons that she had been smuggling in her, I don't, alimentary canal? Is that large intestine? I'm not sure. And I'm going to stop soon. She was convicted of various federal narcotics offenses. However, the Court of Appeals reversed this. So holding that the respondent's detention violated the Fourth Amendment because the customs officials did not have a clear indication of what she was smuggling at the time that she was detained. And like you said, it's going to go on to the Supreme Court. 88 balloons. I could do about 12. I feel, and I'm not bragging, I I just feel like I could do 12, maybe 14, (laughs) but not 88. Wow. Yeah. She's earning 80- her money. Oh, man. Uh-oh, no, you're 80- missing it. What's that song? 88, what's that? Something balloons, red balloons? <laughs> Fuck. 88 white cock balloons. <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> Excuse me. But Sitting yet- <laughs> in my rectomite. Some of the other little details you left out that I liked. Oh, sorry. Um, a female inspector who searched her found out that uh, the Montoya de Hernandez was wearing two sets of elastic yes. underpants and had paper towels lining her crotch area. Right. Which, um, I mean, I, I do that anyway just yeah. because. You're getting older. Um, oh, sorry. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing three. We're doing three-hour podcast <laughs> recording sessions here. I don't have time oh, to go to the bathroom. I'm, I'm just, just sitting on the toilet recording. I just assumed like you Ru- did the same. I'm like Ruprecht. May I use the bathroom? May I go to the bathroom? <laughs> Certainly Ruprecht. Ah, thank you. Well, that where were we? Yeah, where were we? <laughs> um, <laughs> apparently that's a sure sign that uh, you're, you're having Something. trouble controlling your right. bowel movement. Right, something's uh, going on. Yeah. Something's going on. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to poop until you have to poop. Until you so get you have paid. To hold it in. Right. Yeah, paid to poop. <laughs> um, yeah, that's crazy. Like, you yeah. know, we hear stories of uh, drug mules like this and a balloon bursts. She had 88 balloons that yeah. could have burst. How much uh, would any you Any one charge? of which would have killed her. Right. 
<laughs> how much would I charge? How much would you have to get paid oh, to shove a... Oh. I guess you swallow them and then you wait a couple of days and you poop them out. I don't think it's... Is it, well, I guess it has to probably be at least 24 to 48 hours before right. you get down. you got to keep moving. Bowels. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, man. I don't know. Um, anyway, as work. you say, yeah. um, the Supreme Court, the, this is the Burger Court, Warren E. Burger being the Chief Justice, right? Um, uh, reversed the Ninth Circuit's decision oh. that the defendant was subject to an unreasonable search and seizure and upheld the conviction brought by the government because the custom agents were subject to a reasonable suspicion. Right. Which they had now deemed was okay. Um, Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall both dissented. Justin Brennan at this stage is the, uh, (laughs) quite often the lone voice of reason on this court. Right. Um, saying the, this behaviour was more akin to the behaviour of a police state rather than yeah. that of a free society. But it, it was upheld, the conviction. So oh. there you go. J- yeah. Justice William Rehnquist, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote the decision for the court, um, said that the freedom to control one's own bodily functions is a justifiable sacrifice to the veritable national crisis in law enforcement caused by smuggling of illegal narcotics. Um, He listed some of the freedoms that uh, he also wanted to diminish um, to fight the war on drugs. First-class mail may be opened without a warrant on less than probable cause. Automotive travellers may be stopped near the border without individualised suspicion, even if the stop is based largely on ethnicity. Right. And boats on inland waters with ready access to the sea may be hailed and boarded with no suspicion whatsoever. Fuck. What's he going to do on his yacht when he gets pulled over? (laughs) Justice Brennan, again, uh, who we'd previously said, declared that the court's victory over the Fourth Amendment was complete, said, well, I thought it was complete. Now it's really, really really complete. Yes. Uh, He called it a Call it a disgrace. He compared customs agents to kidnappers and wrote, neither the law of the land nor the law of nature supports the notion that petty government officials can require people to excrete on command. Damn. Um, One more thing that Brennan said. He said, the standards we fashion to govern the ferreting out of the guilty apply equally to the detention of the innocent and may be exercised by the most unfit and ruthless officers as well as as well as by the fit and responsible so he's saying we have to be careful because there are cops out there who are mean who have their own problems who um are corrupt and who also could be uh, prejudiced or um you know not like someone of a different color and so they may abuse the law so we have to be careful and he also mentioned that nor is it an issue whether there is a veritable national crisis in law enforcement caused by smuggling of illicit narcotics so he's like the war on drugs just because a politician says it is irrelevant it doesn't alter or change the law and and that was the point he was making and there was just one last thing uh, that he wrote that I wanted to read Stern enforcement of the criminal law is the hallmark of a healthy and self-confident society. But in our democracy, such enforcement presupposes a moral atmosphere and a reliance upon intelligence. 
whereby the effective administration of justice can be achieved with due regard for those civilized standards and in the use of the criminal law, which are formulated in our Bill of Rights. So don't forget your morality. Let's try to do this intelligently. And after all, this stuff is in the Bill of Rights. So quit fucking around. But like you said a minute ago, you know, these freedoms, they are now dead. Mm. Impressive guy, this uh, yeah. Justice William Brennan. Yeah. Appointed by? Um, I don't know. How long has he been on the court? Was it Kennedy? Was it LBJ? Was it, I don't know. Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Wow, he went really went back, didn't he? Appointed in nineteen fifty six by Eisenhower. Yeah. Anywho, um, on November twenty ninth, nineteen eighty five, crack cocaine made page one of the New York Times for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And remember our old mate. Eagle Krogh, Bud Krogh, the guy who found that in Vietnam when they clamped down on marijuana, the guys there started using heroin instead. Right. Um, he, he found that this was now true of what's going on in the US. The government's trying to drive marijuana out of the market, and, of course, it's making cocaine more attractive. Oh, God. And when they pressed hard on cocaine dealers started boiling it down into smaller and more potent forms of cocaine, mm-hmm. and that's how we got crack. So it's capitalism, right? You, yeah. the, the, the need is there. You drive one product out, another product takes its place. And, of course, the products are getting more and more dangerous right. as time goes on right. as well. Yeah, it's becoming cheaper and easier to get, and you're you're coming down on pot, so... And I'm not going to stop. So what are my choices? Mm. Yeah. And uh, Newsweek and the rest of the media started getting in on the bandwagon. Um, as we've all, as we've talked about, drug stories sell papers and magazines, and you know uh, increase viewership numbers. So they were always happy to jump on board. Newsweek was running articles in the mid '80s saying crack is the most addictive drug known to man right now. Mm. Which is actually not true. Um, <laughs> cocaine doesn't create a physical addiction like right. heroin does. Right. Cocaine is v- very reinforcing, right? You you get high on coke and then you come down and you want more. Ah, uh, but you're not physically. But okay. Yeah, I guess it's kind of a psychological addiction, but it's not a physical addiction. You don't go, you know, you don't go into um, withdrawal uh, withdrawal symptoms if you come off of right. cocaine, like you okay. do with heroin, where your body—I don't know if you've ever known anybody who's gone through heroin withdrawal. Not that I know of. Uh, I've, I've known a few people. I've, yeah, I've had a few friends over the years that have come off of heroin um, and gone cold turkey uh, through the rehab process or whatever. They didn't. They didn't go on to uh, using a substitute. They just went straight cold turkey, and it's rough, man. Yeah. Like rough. Damn. Several weeks of just agonizing physical right. pain, curled up in a fetal position, sweating. The shivers, it's like having a really, really bad, it's like having swine flu for, really bad swine flu for three weeks. You know? Jeez. 
Um, about a sixth of people who use cocaine regularly end up with a psychological addiction, though. Only a sixth. I thought so. I thought it was instantly addictive. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> not so much. Yeah, and and crack um, is even more reinforcing than cocaine, apparently, because. Mm-hmm. It, it bypasses the blood vessels of the nose by being smoked, goes into your lungs, gets into ah, your system faster. Right. You're not snorting it. It's one of the most reinforcing of all known drugs, but it, it's not instantly addictive. And if it was, it means that everyone who used it would be addicted to it. And that's just not the case. The data doesn't back that up. Right. Um, Amongst high school seniors in 1987, this is the first year they were asked about cocaine. Wow. 4.1% had used crack in the previous year. Mm. But less than a third of those had used it in the previous month. And only a 40th of those who had tried it were using it every day. And the proportions of addiction for crack have pretty much remained the same ever since even though the overall use of crack has declined. Right. So it's not addictive to everybody. It's not instantly addictive, as the media told us, for decades. Mm-hmm. In fact, a very, very small percentage of people end up addicted to crack who use it. Jeez. Um, yeah, so I'm imagining, did they have statistics on, on cigarettes? Did they find, and of course, this is not going to get out or be published by the government, but was there anything where they asked questions about nicotine or alcohol? Yes, Ray, actually. <laughs> they did have statistics on nicotine. Thank you for asking. What, what a great question, Ray. It's very <laughs> insightful that you're thinking along those lines. <laughs> don't push me. You don't push a bubble boy. Don't Bu- push me, because I'm close <laughs> to the bubble. Bubble boy I'm push back. I'm trying not to chew hubba bubba. <laughs> See what? Uh, did you have hubba bubba in America? Sure you did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, in 1987, the same year they did the, the, mm-hmm. the question about crack, um, 65% of high school seniors who smoke cigarettes at least once a month smoke them every day. Ah. Oh. One fortieth of people who tried crack used it every day. Sixty-five <laughs> percent, Jesus, Jesus, smoke cigarettes every day. Right. So you know this is the kind of bullshit that the government was selling and the media were getting on board with. <clears throat> Nicotine, known to be deadly, right? Um, much more addictive than crack cocaine. But, hey, you know, don't let yeah. the fucking facts get in the way of a good scare story media. And, you know, it's this kind of bullshit. When Trump goes on about the fake-ass media, do you see Trump have that stand-up fucking yes. shut, smack down of the guy from CNN? Yeah, so, Acosta. So, yeah. yeah, so funny and, and sad and horrifying and terrifying time. at the same time. Yeah, God. Like, Oh, and they pulled God. his and, license. And they pulled his. They pulled White yeah, House credentials. Not letting him back in the White House. Yeah. And the rest of the press corps, do they march out in protest? No. Nope. nope. No. They're like, oh, okay, Mr. President. Until that's they come fine. for them, they're not going to do anything. Yeah. Like the Nazis. Yeah. yeah. Fuck the media, man. And so that's why, you know, I kind of agree with Trump. And he goes, fake media. Yeah, you fake media. You've been telling us drugs are bad for us for 100 years, you yeah. fucking load of bullshit artists. So the. Anyway. <laughs> 
So, so the, so the media of all types is, you know, scaring the hell out of America. And obviously they don't have this information from this 1987 survey, which is being asked for the first time of high school kids, but they probably wouldn't even seek it out. They've got their flashy covers, their, their, um, alarmist, uh, headlines. That's all they need. Their, 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 uh, subscriptions are going up, making tons of money from advertising. It's all good. Forget the fact that you're just scaring the shit out of all the moms out there. You're making money. Yeah. yeah. And using that money to buy Coke to snort <laughs> The irony. Yourself. The yeah. irony. Yeah. Let, more, more Coke for us. That's right. Yeah. They're like, well, you know, <laughs> Coke's got limited supply. We need to scare the people into not using Coke. Right. So, there's, so the price us. goes down and yeah. there's more of it for us. Win-win. So, clever. Clever. Really. Clever. Clever. Yeah. In 1984, the figures showed that cocaine killed fewer people than either aspirin or the flu. Or, or, or choking on your food. Uh, 604 people died, not from cocaine, but they had cocaine in their system. That was up threefold from 1981. And like you said, that was less than people from the flu, ulcers, stroke, heart disease, or handguns if we may. But again, the, the, some of the Newsweek articles that were scaring uh, the, the families out there had one part in the article that said, there is simply no question that cocaine in all its forms is seeping into the nation's schools. And you just said a minute ago, 4%. That's not exactly seeping into the nation's schools. So, uh, so, f- so 4% of them are using it daily. How many children under 18 died from cocaine in 1984? Eight. No idea. Eight. 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 Mm. Eight people under the age of 18 died of... And, of course, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I can only imagine between alcohols and cigarettes, I'm sure that was much, much larger numbers. But they have powerful lobbies, so no one's going to touch them. Mm. The issue of Newsweek that we were talking about, the kids and cocaine issue, had a cover photo of a teenager snorting coke. Um <sighs> Right. On the carpeted stairway of a suburban house, it sold 15% more copies than that year's average. Just think if our subscriptions went up 15%. Whatever we did, I would do it again and again and again. And that's what they did. I just need a picture of you in, in a bubble. In a bubble. And market that. Yeah, like, please buy the, please listen to the poor Bubble Boys podcast. He's a bubble boy. <laughs> bubble man. Well... Mm. According to some. Now, the editor-in-chief of Newsweek, Richard M. Smith, he wasn't an idiot. He he knew a good thing when he saw it. He put crack on the cover again three months later. He wrote an editorial that said, an epidemic is abroad in America, as as pervasive and dangerous in its way as the plagues of medieval times. Now... What? No one called him on this? Yeah. How yeah. many people did the uh, Black Death kill, Ray? Do you recall um, from our uh, Renaissance show? I think somewhere between 40 and 60% of the population. Of the entire pop fucking population of Europe. Uh, well, I think the Black Death was about a third, but different places. Okay. Or maybe I'm thinking of Florence. I might be thinking of Florence. Sorry. Yeah. A shit ton. Um, a shit ton. How, what percentage of the population did cocaine kill? In the um, year of 1987. Um, I imagine it's a Well, lot you smaller. mentioned 
You mentioned 1984, 604 deaths that mentioned cocaine. As you oh. said, it doesn't mean they suddenly... They died from cocaine, but it was right. in their system when they died. They, you know, if you if you take a snort of cocaine and then you get mugged while crossing the street, <laughs> it still says you've got coke in your system, right. so it goes into that total, right? But it had nothing to do with you getting killed. It was one four hundred thousandth of the population died from Fuck. cocaine that year, but he compared it to the fucking Black Death. Jeez. Proud yeah. of yourself? Yeah. So the media, by sort of the end of 1985, had radically changed the way they portrayed the cocaine problem. Uh, Up until now, it had been sort of the Hollywood set, rock stars, movie stars, rich, Mm. attractive, white, maybe a little bit tragic because they they had it all and they were doing coke. Yeah. But, you know, it it wasn't wasn't a problem for the masses. Now the media starts, uh, when when they're covering cocaine, what you see is either blacks or Hispanics snorting or smoking cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they weren't tragic. They were scary. Right. Uh, it was like the front lines of the drug war was like being in Vietnam. You had to have pictures of a white cop arresting a dark-skinned crackhead. And, uh, you know, yeah. it was uh, just you know, the racist element. Right. Right. Again, is prevalent in the U.S. media, um, trying to make it seem like it's all dark-skinned or Hispanic people that are the drug users uh, and, right. and associating them with violence. There, two two researchers from the University of Michigan uh, counted up all of the coke users portrayed on television mm-hmm. starting in December 1985, they found that the depiction of white cocaine users fell by about two-thirds while the depiction of black cocaine users rose by the same amount. Wow. Just blatantly just putting it out there. So, so what are you supposed to think? If you just watch the news, you don't really think about anything, what's your conclusion? Well, they concluded that these numbers support our view that during the Reagan era, the cocaine problem, as defined by the network news, mm-hmm. became increasingly associated with people of color. Ah, right. Just another and reason that, to hate them or fear them or whatever. Yeah. And things continued to get worse under Reagan. Social services continued to be cut, and the hardest hit of those turned to drugs but we're going to talk about that uh, and AIDS mm-hmm. and uh, crack babies uh, on our next episode. Donald, he's got this rare immune deficiency in his blood. Play this again. The damnedest thing. No. Doctors say he has to live in a plastic bubble. Can you imagine that? A bubble. A bubble? A bubble. Yes, a bubble. A bubble boy? Yes, a bubble boy. He lives in a bubble. Everything, all for the sake of our little bubble boy.